If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. The scripture lesson for this morning comes from Isaiah, the 35th chapter, verses 1 through 10, under the heading, The Return of the Redeemed to Zion. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear, here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the Holy Way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Tis the season for Christmas cards from grandma, from neighbors, from people you actually have no other contact with besides that Christmas card. I, for one, love Christmas cards. I love them. Send me all the photos and exclamation marks and cheerful wishes. I am here for it. In the walkie house, ever since Colin's election in 2016, our Christmas card output has doubled. We send out some of our own, and then his campaign sends season's greetings to the district. Almost all elected officials do this, and every year I get some version of the same request from campaign consultants. 
asking for scripture recommendations. This is the Bible Belt, which means it's very important to our particular constituency to see a word from the good book on the Christmas card from their elected official. And because there are few things modern Christians enjoy more than reading Bible verses and misapplying them out of context to their own lives, <laughs> here we are. Because of the particular consultants the walkie campaign works with, these requests say something like, hey Rev, what's a good Bible verse to put on a Christmas card that's going to be sent to people who likely voted for Trump? <laughs> Believe me when I say, I do not need any help coming up with snarky replies. <laughs> Galatians 6, 7, you reap whatever you sow. <laughs> Psalm 109.8, may his days be few, may another seize his position. <laughs> or decidedly less funny, Mark 9.42, if any of you put a stumbling block before any of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. For the record, my suggestion to consultants about scripture used on campaign Christmas cards is the same no matter who the intended audience. To state the obvious, scripture is not partisan. There are not Republican verses, Democrat verses, Libertarian verses, or Green Party verses. What the Bible says depends on what we bring to it. Because the Bible doesn't actually say anything. We interpret it. This is why such wildly different conclusions can be drawn from the story of, say, Jesus' birth. Like the suggestion that the Christmas story, which tells us Mary and Joseph had to travel to Nazareth, is a reminder to progressives that greed for taxes hurts the poor first and most. Versus a reminder to fundamentalists that the Christmas story is about a child born into poverty and in need of support from the wealthy, or about God identifying with the marginalized, not the powerful. To be sure, there is some correlation between partisanship and biblical interpretation, but it can be very dangerous to make assumptions about how people read the Bible based on their voter registration card instead of on how they live. This is not a particularly popular take, even among people who claim to be wildly liberal, the catch-all word for generous and open-minded, a label we like to claim around here. But the truth is, if we are willing to apply the same level of scrutiny to our own lives as we do others, Instead of doing the hard work of building relationships, shaping policy, and changing culture, we would rather deliver clever one-liners and knee-slapping zingers. This is because even in the church, we've forgotten that our primary identity isn't Republican or Democrat, left or right, but rather child of God. 
What a strange idea to insist upon in this particular moment in history, the suggestion that we are not on opposing teams, but rather that we are kin, related, family. It is a suggestion, an orientation, a framework so unexpected, so out of step, so out of place, that it's almost laughable, except that this is church and this is our tradition, whether we like it or not. This is where we hear a word out of place, like Isaiah 35. Perhaps it's not obvious because we didn't read the surrounding chapters, but this text really shouldn't be here. Scholars aren't exactly sure what to do with the 35th chapter of Isaiah. They say it really belongs in the second book of Isaiah. I know there's only one book of Isaiah in your Bible, but scholars divide Isaiah into three separate chunks. Chapters 1 through 39, chapters 40 through 55, and chapters 56 through 66. Based on language and writing patterns, as well as historical and theological themes, it seems to have been written by three inspired individuals or schools over several centuries. The second book of Isaiah is decidedly happier and more hopeful than the first, which is why scholars think Isaiah 35 really belongs there. And if we were to read the chapters that surround Isaiah 35, it becomes clear why they think so. Chapter 34 of Isaiah is dark, really, really dark. Their land shall be soaked with blood, her soil will be sulfur, her land shall become burning pitch, its smoke shall go up forever. There are two different kinds of demons named, along with hyenas, jackals, and buzzards. That's the kind of dark we're talking about. Verse 12 actually says, they shall name it, no kingdom there. The entire chapter is a warning, a terrible and threatening warning. It is the exact opposite of the imagery we find in Isaiah 35. And then there are the chapters that follow Isaiah 35, the finale to the first book of Isaiah, chapters 36 through 39, a historical narrative that includes names that are impossible to pronounce and at times is a bit of a snooze fest. I mean, like some of the speeches could be considered poetry, but it's a stretch. And that is why Isaiah 35, surrounded by the apocalypse of chapter 34 and the prose narrative of chapters 36 through 39, is shocking. So it is that scholars are a bit puzzled by Isaiah 35, which most commentaries say belong in an entirely book altogether. The language, the tone, it seems wrong. And you've, you've heard it once, but it's worth another listen. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Perhaps for most of us, the closest thing we can compare Isaiah's vision to is what happened in parts of the California wilderness this spring, which erupted in a rare super bloom event, a massive explosion of poppies covering areas like Walker Canyon and the Santa Monica Mountains, and it could even be seen from space. Imagine that, so many flowers, we can see it from space. 
This is no half-hearted blooming. There's a promise in Isaiah 35 specifically for those who remembered Israel's 40-year trek in the desert post-Egypt, a time when water was so scarce they cried out for it. But this time, on the road home, the road is full of life. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirst grounds waters burst forth with water. No need for a water bottle. You can just bend down and scoop up a handful of ice-cold refreshment because it's there. And then there is the highway, a holy way of life, the sacred way. No traveler, not even fools, it says, shall go astray. This may be the most outlandish claim in all of scripture for us to believe. I mean, as my grandma says, you can't fix stupid. <laughs> That's the same grandma many of you met in the documentary American Heretics, the one everyone thinks is some sweet old lady. She actually said, you can't fix stupid during filming. It just didn't make the cut. This is why I don't need help coming up with snark. You can't fix stupid. You know the type. When everyone else seems to be on board, there are just some people who can't pull themselves together, belligerent. They cannot be persuaded or reasoned with or cajoled. And I have a feeling that Isaiah's grandma must have used that line too, which is why when he is speaking of abundant life, he makes a point of saying, even fools will be able to figure this out. Straight, clear, wide, welcoming. This is the road home. This is Isaiah's grand vision, even before Israel is out of exile, out of trouble, out of the proverbial woods. Isaiah 35 dares to speak a word out of place, a word that refused to wait until things improved, surrounded by doomsday prophecy while they were still under the thumb of the powers and principalities. But as theologian Walter Brueggemann says, Israel's doxologies are characteristically against the data. The data being exile, separation, despair. It is into this data that Isaiah speaks a word out of place. He doesn't wait until the second book of Isaiah where most of the hope lives. He just goes ahead and blurts it out. We, we too know the data. We see it flash on our phones through push notifications. We hear it on the radio, on the drive into work. We watch it on the nightly news. We know the data the data of increasing numbers of depression and isolation, the data of increasingly polarized and racially divided America, the data of the widening gap between the rich and the poor. And how desperately we would like to hear a word out of place, a word of inclusion, of reconciliation, of generosity. But who will speak it? Who will speak this word out of place? 
Last week, my colleague, Reverend Jonathan Chapman and his church members at Westfield UCC in Connecticut gathered outside the entrance of the high school where a contentious board of education meeting was to be held. They got there early and set up for hugs of encouragement, cookies for sweetness and candles as a reminder of light in anticipation of a difficult conversation. There was no stance taken, no agenda pushed, except for one supporting the community in finding a way forward together. While they were there, a man came up to Jonathan and after sending his child inside, pulled Jonathan aside and asked, why are you here? Is this politically motivated? There are people who think you're doing this in order to take a side. Jonathan assured him that that was not the case. You don't have an opinion, the man pushed back. Do I have an opinion, Jonathan said. Absolutely, I'm a preacher. But most of my church members have an opinion too, and we aren't all of one mind. But tonight, we're here trying to remind folks to be kind, that we were neighbors before this meeting, and we'll be neighbors after this meeting. So, do you want a cookie? The man took the cookie, and his shoulders relaxed a little bit, a word out of place. And you've all likely heard about the exchange between Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and a reporter who asked her if she hates President Trump. Her response surprised some people. The intensity of her response surprised some people. I don't hate the president, she said. I still pray for the president. I pray for the president all the time. She took some heat over this word out of place, particularly from those on the left. They were offended by the thought she would pray for him, as if Praying for someone excuses or condones bad policy or behavior. Nah, prayer doesn't do that. It doesn't mean acquiescence. It doesn't tamp down or tame the pursuit of justice. It doesn't let anyone off the hook. It does, however, keep the person who is praying from turning another child of God into something less than that. It does keep a person who is praying in the word of God. It means that the person who is praying takes seriously the teachings of Jesus, which urge us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A word out of place. If there is any chance for us to change the course we're on, it hangs on our willingness to edit the script we've been handed, to say, I'm sorry, I love you, I forgive you, to say, let's stop fighting on the internet and talk about this over coffee, or how can I help you, or I'm praying for you, and mean it. Oh, that we would say it first, even and especially 
if it seems out of place. Rather than waiting to hear someone else speak it, let it be us now, today. It can't wait. Really, it can't wait. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Laurie Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.